welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning. Great to be back. Even if you don't know that I was ever here before. <laughs> but uh, it's good. I, I, Lisa and I felt like this is a, a bit of a an oasis for us, and we love the church, and we've made some relationships, so thank you for your welcome. Uh, you've been studying the book of Galatians, and what a book, and I think you would agree that, that the key word that would summarize the book is the word freedom. Sometimes the book is called the epistle of freedom, or the gospel of freedom, or the letter of freedom. Uh, the apostle is writing to a group of people who are tempted to enter a form of religious slavery. And he says in a word, the whole letter screams one word, don't do that, don't. Uh, freedom is a very elastic word, right? 1960s Africa, uh, freedom meant emancipation from European white colonialism. Uh, to a free market capitalist, freedom means a, a lack of uh, trade restrictions and low taxes. To Ronald Reagan, for you who are younger, Ronald Reagan was a president of the United States way back in 1980. Uh, Ronald Reagan, to him, freedom was the opposite of communism. And if we go back even further to 1941, we had a president named FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He talked about four freedoms in his inaugural address. Free to speak everywhere, free to worship everywhere, free from want everywhere, free from fear everywhere. But watch this. Every freedom has its own constraint, its own limitation. There was a song in the 60s written by Chris Christopherson, popularized by Janis Joplin, and it had the chorus. It was about a couple hitchhiking around the country, and they were free, but the chorus went like this. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, and nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. You know, if you've ever been to Europe or maybe around here somewhere, you, you see a paraglider and it's up there and it's so beautiful. I, I've seen them on a Sunday afternoon in the Swiss Alps and think, boy, there's so much freedom there. But every paraglider is constrained by what? Gravity. <laughs> I had a friend who was a paraglider and he said that the fundamental law is that taking off is optional, landing is not. <laughs> Uh, so th so there's, there's retired people. They have some freedom. You know, they, can, they don't know the difference between Monday and Tuesday. But they are, well, they're governed by the length of the tether and how much money they've saved and how their health is. Remember Free Willy? Free Willy. What? F Willy finally got out, right? But now he's got to get his own food. So he's free, but he's not free. Galatians is about being free in Christ. You know, in the whole book, there are only three references to the word freedom. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is against the so-called Judaizers who want to promote circumcision as a means to knowing God. And he says they have slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, probably the most popular verse of the book, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the third reference to freedom comes in our text. We're going to look at Galatians 5, verses 13 through 25. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? If you're in your Bible, keep it open. And if you're not, listen up. Here we go. Here's what Paul says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 
but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Okay, we're going to take this apart in three paragraphs. We're going to look at the nature of Christian freedom, the enemy of Christian freedom, and the produce of Christian freedom. So first, in verses 13 to 15, what is the nature of Christian freedom? What is it? Uh, if we were to call the Christian faith a horse, you, you, you put on the side of the horse, it says Christian faith, and every believer had to get up onto that horse, and there's no saddle, there's a tendency to fall off on one side of the horse or the other. And on one side of the horse is a ditch called license. And on the other side of the horse is a ditch called legalism. License is the error that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, because we're free in Christ. Legalism is the opposite extreme. And legalism is not the notion that we should be good people. It's the notion that by being good, we can have God be pleased with us, and thus he will welcome us into his family. It's earning our own salvation. Well, that horse, Paul says, we got to be very careful with. Look at verse 13. Don't use your opportunity, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. And then he says the whole law is summarized in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't know, you've been in Galatians for weeks now, and I don't know if you find that uh, kind of interesting that at this point Paul would say that, because the whole letter has been against law-keeping in a sense, law-keeping for the wrong reasons. But here he says the law has a, a good function, that is, that we would serve one another through love. Law, the law of God is God's good gift to us, but it is never a means for our salvation. So way back when, when I was in high school, probably maybe junior high, without a driver's license, uh, a friend of mine named Greg Lawrence came across what was then 
and I guess would still be called a Honda 90. In those days, they didn't have mopeds. A Honda, and they didn't have electric bikes. A Honda 90 was the kind of the smallest little motorcycle you could possibly buy. And Greg Lawrence got a Honda 90, and we, I lived in the San Fernando Valley at the time, and he got on that thing and was gone for about a half an hour, and he rode all over the place. And he came back, he survived, no helmet, no protective clothing, no training, he, but he made it. And he came back and he got off the Honda 90 to give me my turn, and he said, I feel so, what? Free. I mean, here's, here's a 15-year-old kid uh, finally, on a motorized vehicle, going wherever he wants. He felt so free, and he was. Unfortunately, he made it. But his, his freedom was limited by the contours of trucks and cars and bumps and red lights and so on. He was not absolutely free. What is the constraint or the boundary line of Christian freedom? What keeps us from falling off the horse from, to one side or the other? The constraint is love. Now, if you can see it, look at the screen. I want to show you a quote by John Stott. And if John Stott said it, it has to be true. Stott says, Christian freedom expresses itself in self-control, loving service to our neighbor, and obedience to God's law. Look at that quote. Self-control, loving service to our neighbor, and obedience to God's law. Would anyone agree with me that that sets the bar pretty high? And that's a high bar. How can I have self-control, a desire to serve my neighbor, and actually want to obey God's law? The answer is in our passage. The answer of the passage is through the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you noticed, and I doubt you counted, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name in this passage seven times. Verse 16 and 17, the, the Holy Spirit subdues our flesh. Verse 18, the Holy Spirit frees us from the law as our master. Verses 22 and 23, the Holy Spirit causes the fruit of righteousness to grow out of us. Verse 25, the Spirit is our source of life and the one with whom we are to keep step. Watch this. Hear me. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we will never enjoy Christian freedom. We will fall off the horse from one, to one side or the other. Now, I have one thing to say today. I'm going to get in my car when we're done, and I'm going to drive back to Santa Barbara, where I live. And if, if you get this one thing, I'm going to go back happy. And you do want me to go back happy, right? Okay, good. Amen. I like that. We're going to have charismatic renewal right now about my happiness. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I want to say. Chris, I love the hoot back here. Do it again a little later. Well, there'll be moments. That was good. I thought, man, for a moment, I thought this wasn't a Presbyterian church. But... Here's the point. Christian freedom leads to a life of love empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a mouthful, but that's what I want us to know. Christian freedom leads to a life of love empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, every freedom has a constraint, right? And the constraint of Christian freedom is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you've not come to Christ as Lord, forget about living the Spirit-filled life. That's the prerequisite. But when we come to Christ, when we submit to Him as Lord, He sends His Spirit into us, empowering us to live a life of love. Very cool. The constraint of Christian freedom is the Lordship of Christ who sends His Spirit into us, and then we are able to live a life of love. 
So that's the nature of Christian freedom. Second, the enemy of Christian freedom. The enemy of Christian freedom is what Paul calls the flesh. Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, I want to look at those two words very briefly. The word flesh in the Bible sometimes refers to skin, but not usually. Especially in Paul, the word flesh refers to our dark side. That part of us that we wish wasn't there. The word in Greek is sarx. It almost sounds bad, doesn't it? So the ancient Greeks, got to know this, the ancient Greeks believed that your very body was the problem, your physical body. The Bible does not talk like that. The Bible says that God created your body and he's going to redeem your body when Christ comes again. Your body is not the problem, but there's something in you that Paul calls the flesh that is your problem. Paul says to the Philippian church, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. So one day every one of us here is going to grow old and we're going to die and be buried. And the promise of the scripture is that God is not just going to take us to heaven as a ghost, but we're going to get a resurrected body. This is personal for me. My dad died. My dad, my 91-year-old father died this Thursday. And I saw his body in bed on Thursday morning. You know who he looked like? He looked like my dad. <laughs> and I looked at him and I thought, he's a strong believer, and I thought, I'm going to see him again with a raised body. The body is not the problem. What the problem is, is that sin nature in us. So Romans verse uh, 18 of chapter 7, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So as one theologian says, the flesh is the me that tries to satisfy myself with anything other than God's love and mercy. And we all do that. Now, the other word besides flesh is the word desire. And you think, is it wrong for Christians to have desires? No, not at all. But this is the Greek word epithumia. It's, it's like a super desire, a desire that is, is inordinate. It's not right. So within each of us, here's the picture. There is on one side these over-desires in the flesh, and on the other side the Holy Spirit. And those are working against each other. Paul says in verse 17, the flesh is trying to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What do we want to do? As children of God, we want to please our Heavenly Father. But we find another force within us. So a couple of years ago, I was in Italy with my wife and a friend that I hadn't seen for about a decade. His name was Gary. And we went out to dinner, and I was paying, and we had a glass of wine, and Gary ordered a second. And then he ordered a third. And then he ordered a fourth glass of wine. And then he ordered a fifth glass of wine. And then he ordered a sixth glass of wine. And I'm thinking, I'm paying for this? And then he ordered a seventh glass of wine. 
And I said to him, my old friend, I said, Gary, you have a problem with alcohol, don't you? Do you know what he said? He said, thank you for asking. He said, I can't stop. I want to stop. I can't stop. This guy's a professing Christian. I want to stop. I cannot stop. He says, I drink myself to sleep every night. Do you see it? You see that, that, that flesh and, and the spirit at war with one another? Now, fortunately, in his case, he, he got done with that. He got some help, and, and he's not drinking anymore. But, but there's something in each of us. You know, you, you purpose to be nice to your... Are you all brothers here? Is this four? Are you guys, no. Well, okay, so you purpose to be nice to, to your friend, and then you get in a fight. <laughs> it's never happened to you, but it happened to me when I was young. <laughs> you purpose to be nice to your wife and, and, and buy her flowers, and then you convince yourself that the, uh, the line is too long at Trader Joe's, and so you skip it for another three or four weeks. Uh, you purpose to treat your husband well, and 15 minutes later, you're raising your voice. You, you say, I'm never going to have a fight with my mom on the phone again. And you get on the phone, and, and within three minutes, you're, you're back to it. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. So look at the list of the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, strife, fits of anger. Do you see yourself there at all? Boy, I sure do. But then look at verse 21. It's, it's kind of shocking. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What can Paul mean? Does he mean that if you find yourself at work and your, your colleague gets the promotion and you don't and you're a little bit envious, does he mean therefore you're going to go to hell? Or does he mean if you go to your friend's house this afternoon for lunch and he has a nicer house than you do and you're a little bit envious, well, that's it for you. <laughs> kind of scary verse, isn't it? Well, we need to dissect the grammar of the text, Paul is saying, if we, if we over-translated it, he is saying, I warn you that those who are in the habit of practicing such things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is this, that if, if there's sin in our life and we don't flee from it, but we embrace it and we approve it and we encourage others to come along with us, Paul's saying, you probably don't know Christ at all. Perhaps you've never been born again. If the habitual pattern of our lives is one of flagrant disobedience to the revealed will of God, we need not fear that we have lost our salvation. Rather, we ought to ask if we've come to Christ in the first place. And if you haven't come to Christ, today would be a good day to do that. The gospel teaches us that each of us is hopelessly lost in our sins and that God in his mercy came to us, paid the price for our sins, and we receive his gift by faith. And today would be a good day to come on in. So the nature of Christian freedom is a life of love empowered by the Holy Spirit. The enemy of Christian freedom is our own flesh. But what about the produce? The produce of Christian freedom. Look at verse 22. We expect Paul to say, now the work of the Spirit or the works of the Spirit. He doesn't. You know, the works of the flesh are these. Well, what about the works of the Spirit? He doesn't say that. 
Rather, he says, the fruit of the Spirit. If God's Spirit is at work within us, fruit will come out. And he tells us what the fruit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, watch this. Really important that we get this. Paul is not putting up two lists in, his, in this letter saying, make sure you don't do these things and make sure you do do these things. That's not what he's doing at all. He's not doing that. The key to the whole passage is this one little tiny word, fruit. This is not a personality test. He's not saying, oh, well, we've got somebody who's patient over here. That's your personality. And, and over here, oh, you're, you're, you're into faithfulness. You know, that's, your, that's your personality. And you, you, we've all taken those tests that make you feel so bad. <laughs> no. Paul is talking about the fruit of God's work in our lives. All of this fruit is for every Christian. Christopher Wright put it like this. The fruit is the natural product of life. If a tree is alive, it will bear fruit. It is the nature of being a living tree. Fruit is what you get when a tree has life within it. So it's not the fruits of the Spirit, plural. It's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. So what Paul is saying is that the fruit of the Spirit is what God himself will produce in us when we come to Christ. The fruit of the Spirit describes not some extraordinary Christian life, but normal Christian living. Now there's a quote, another quote from Christopher Wright, the life of God by his Spirit will bear fruit in the tree of a person's life simply because this is what God is like and this is what God produces. So remember our main point? Christian freedom leads to a life of love empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't you want that freedom? I know I do. Now, did you notice, I'm just about done, but did you notice the words that Paul, the verbs that Paul puts together with the Holy Spirit? Look at your Bible. Look at verse 16. Walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, led by the Spirit. Verse 25, live by the Spirit. Verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. I want to end my time with just some practical comments on, on how we can live the Spirit-empowered life as God's children. Number one, if you want the Spirit-empowered life, it's imperative that you allow yourself to be led. I've, known, I've been a pastor a long time, and I've known a lot of people who want God to overwhelm them. God generally is not in the habit of doing that. Once in a while, remember Jonah? God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no way. And God overwhelmed Jonah. Bad, bad day for Jonah. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> but, but the Spirit-empowered life is a, is a life of submission. To walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, requires us to crush our pride and submit to God Himself. It's a daily act of submission. To be led by the Spirit of God as He speaks to us in His Word and as He speaks to us in our hearts. We must submit. And as long as we are puffed up and proud, there will be no room for the Spirit's work in our life. It's just as simple as that. So allow yourself to be led. Number two, Align yourself with God. 
don't bother praying for the fullness of the Spirit in your life if, if you're not aligned with God. Do you know the name George Mueller? George Mueller was a 19th century Prussian, Germany, who moved to Bristol, England, and he felt a call in his life to start an orphanage. So he started an orphanage, and then two orphanages, and then three, and then four, and then five. Uh, a fascinating guy. He never had a support letter. He never raised any funds. He just prayed. And uh, during his ministry, before he died, it's thought that those orphanages, they cared for 10,000 orphans. And they never asked for money. Well, George Mueller wrote an autobiography, and in it he said this. It's absolutely fascinating to me. He said, as, he, as all that you can imagine how busy a guy like that would be running these orphanages, five of them, he says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to keep my soul happy in God. Wow. All that stuff to do. And he said, the first call in my life was to keep myself happy in God. Church, if we want the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, we've got to put our soul in the right place and be happy in Christ. So allow yourself to be led. Align yourself with God. And lastly, ask and keep asking. What? Do I have to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, yeah, you do. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. That's excessive. Be filled with the Spirit. So in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, uh, you ought to be praying. And he says, your heavenly Father, he's a good father. He says, if his son asks for a fish, a good father's not going to give him a serpent. And if a son asks for an egg, a good father's not going to give him a scorpion. And you remember how he ends that little section? He says, how much more will my Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is inviting us to ask. And if I could give you a, just a little word from my own life, I, I start the day every day in, in prayer and with my Bible open, and I pray daily. I say, Lord, I, I got things to do today, and some of it's good and some of it's not so good, but, but I'm going to be distracted. I need your Holy Spirit to fill me right now. Would you please do that? John Stott, I've already referred to him once. John Stott was a British... Uh, pastor and kind of evangelical statesman. You know, he spent 40 years of his life plus praying the same prayer every morning. 40 years. I'm going I'm to give it to you. Here's what he said. I'm sure he prayed other prayers, but he prayed this prayer 40 years every morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you might cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So Lord Jesus, uh, 
we want to be men and women uh, empowered by the Spirit for the freedom that you've called us to live. We thank you and we praise you for what you've done in Christ. We praise you that we are free indeed. And now fill us so that we can live out that freedom and not fall off the horse. And God's people said, amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.